Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we return to Billy Graham. Evangelist Billy Graham took Christ literally when he said in Mark chapter 16, 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Today, Mr. Graham's ministry is known around the globe. He ministered to heads of state, simple living bushmen of Australia, the wandering tribes of Africa, and the Middle East. Mr. Graham founded the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association in 1950. This association, known as the BGEA, started the radio program, Hour of Decision, television programs that are still broadcast today, a syndicated newspaper column called My Answer, and Decision Magazine, the official publication of Mr. Graham's association. Today's message is Remember Lot's Wife. I want us to turn to the second shortest verse in the Bible. It's found in the 17th chapter of Luke a little bit after the scripture verse that, verses that Grady Wilson just read to us. It's only three words in that verse, and they're full of meaning that I want to convey to you today. Remember Lot's wife. That's all it says. Remember Lot's wife. Isn't that a strange verse? Remember Lot's wife. And that was spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ. I heard about two little boys. And uh, they were walking down the street. They'd just been to Sunday school where they had studied this passage of Scripture. And one of them said, boy, isn't that something? Lot's wife looked back and turned to a pillar of salt. The other boy said, well, that's nothing. Said, um, my mom took my father's car and looked back and ran into a lamppost. <laughs> so the Scripture says, likewise, as in the days of Lot when they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planning and building, that God poured out fire and brimstone upon the cities of the plain. And you find that, those uh, verses, describing all of that back in Genesis. And you can read the story of Lot and Abraham. Now, there are many articles and books coming out now that mention the name Armageddon. And a newspaper headline last summer in some situation describing the Middle Eastern war between Iraq and Iran said, Armageddon near. Now, the word Armageddon is mentioned in the Bible twice. In Revelation 16, 16 and Revelation 19, 17, and it refers to a certain place called Megiddo. It's a field. I've seen it. Napoleon once looked at it and said it would make the finest battlefield in the world. It's west of the Jordan between Galilee and Samaria in the plain of Jezreel. And it's come to be a symbol, a symbol of the last war of history. Are we going to have another war? And will it be a last war? General Douglas MacArthur once said, mankind has had its last chance. Next time, it'll be Armageddon. 
And Jesus once said, in that day, except those days should be shortened, no flesh could be saved upon the earth. The apostle Peter prophesied in the third chapter of 2 Peter, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. In other words, there is coming a day in which fearful judgment is going to come upon the world. And unless God intervenes, it could destroy civilization, destroy all of mankind upon this planet. We now figure that the earth, the entire world population, could be destroyed in a matter of about 15 minutes if there was a major exchange of nuclear weapons. But they now are developing weapons that are going to make the atomic bomb obsolete in the next 10 to 12 years. We are entering a period in which mankind is having its last chance. General Bradley, speaking right here in Connecticut, once said that our morals are lagging far behind our technological advance, and he said mankind is on the very edge of total annihilation. And he said that many years ago. What if he were living today and could see what's happening now? Now it started with Abraham, this story. Abraham was, along with Moses, was the two or the three greatest, with David, the three greatest men in the Old Testament, or Elijah, you could add a number. But Abraham was a friend of God, a man after God's own heart. And he came from a place called Ur. Now Ur is almost at the exact point where Iraq and Iran have now been fighting. They've been fighting over that very area at the north end of the Persian Gulf. And God had called Abraham to leave his country and go to a land that he had never heard of and settle there, and God was going to give it to him and his seed forever. So he took his father by the name of Terah, and they went, not knowing where they were going. They were just following the leading of the Spirit of God. And they came to Haran. Then they went to Canaan. Then he went down to Egypt, and he got into trouble down in Egypt, and God's providence delivered him in spite of the fact that he sinned in Egypt. And he came back to a place called Bethel, and he built an altar. And there was the place that he sacrificed to God and prayed to God and found forgiveness and rededication of his life to God. And after that, Abraham became a very rich man. Cattle, sheep, goats, all the things that would make a person wealthy in those days he had. He had hundreds of servants. He had an army. He had everything. He was a great Middle Eastern sheik. And he had a nephew by the name of Lot. And Lot was not only his nephew, but Lot was his friend. Now there comes a time when you become wealthy that riches and affluency become dangerous. They often lead to spiritual poverty. The scripture says, a man to whom God hath given riches and wealth and honor so that he wanteth nothing for his soul. In other words, if you have too much of this life, you won't feel any need for God within your heart. 
Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. You say, do you believe that's a literal needle? Yes, I do. I don't find everybody believes that, but I do. Now, who is a rich man? I think all Americans are rich by the world's standards. You'd have to go to Bangladesh and India and some of the places in Africa where we've been to see what poverty is, what hunger is. If you have any clothes to wear, if you have any shoes to wear, you are rich by the world's standards. And we are rich people. And Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for you and me to get to heaven. But then he said, with God, all things are possible. If we repent of our sin and receive Christ as our Savior, we're saved not because of our riches or because of our works. We're saved by the mercy and the grace of God. And it was the love of God that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. I'm not saved by doing good works. I'm not saved by joining a church. I'm not saved by being baptized. I am saved and I know I'm going to heaven because of the grace of God. And that's unmerited favor, something I cannot work for. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Some of you have been watching by television. You see a, a, a number on the screen. You can pick up the phone and call that number. And if you'll call that number, somebody will answer and help you in finding Christ at this very moment in your life. Now, Lot and Abraham had come to the parting of the ways. Uh, their servants didn't get along with each other. The shepherds didn't get along with each other. So Abraham said to Lot one day, Lot, I'll give you a choice. You go any direction you want to go, and I'll go in the opposite direction, and we'll separate our herds and separate our riches and separate our kinsmen and our men so that they won't fight each other. And so Lot went back and conferred with his wife and his daughters and said, Abraham has made us that proposition. Where would you like to go? And they looked up and down everywhere, and they looked down in the valley, and they saw the well-watered valley of the Jordan. They saw all the palm trees and the orange trees and all the other things that were growing. And then they saw Sodom, and they saw Gomorrah, and they saw all the excitement, all the thrill of the big city. And so they decided to go to Sodom. And it says he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He made his choice. Now, what was Sodom like? Well, Sodom was sort of a combination of Wall Street and Las Vegas and Atlantic City and the Soho District of London or the Reaper Bomb in Hamburg or the Red Light District of Amsterdam. It was sort of a combination of all those places. Now, let's listen again to Ezekiel and Jesus. In Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel said, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, that was one of their sins. Fullness of bread, they had too much prosperity. Abundance of idleness, too much leisure time. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. They didn't help the poor and the needy in the area in which they lived. And that was a sin. And they were haughty, they were proud. And they committed 
abominations unto me. And they committed such sins that we now have a word called sodomy to describe a terrible sin in the sight of God. And Jesus tells us in Luke, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be when the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, the world is going to turn and come back and live like they did in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah and be ripe for judgment. And the road to our Armageddon is similar to the road to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now those people had false security. They had some scientific achievement and military power and economic strength. And they were filled with sinful pleasure. We too have become satiated. Look at our television screens filled with entertainment and the film theaters and everywhere is entertainment. We want to be entertained all the time. I remember when I was growing up and the radio first came, somebody came out in the newspaper and said, cows will give more milk if they can hear the music. So my father bought a radio and put it in the cow barn and played country music to the cows, thinking they'd give more. Maybe they do, I don't know. That could be scientifically proven. My father thought it was. But we have to be entertained. Most of us don't want to be alone for five minutes. We can't stand to be alone. We go wild. The first thing you do when you go into the room, turn on the TV set. Go to the kitchen, turn on the radio or your little kitchen TV. I saw a woman on television interviewed two years ago and she was complaining about the fact that she didn't receive enough help from the government and the interviewer said, how many television sets do you have in your house? And she thought for a moment, she said four. And said, what kind of car is that sitting out there? Well, said it's an old car, said it's about two years old. And uh, you know, we're so used to everything. Affluency and immorality. And the scripture says in Proverbs 14, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man but the end thereof are the ways of death. The scripture says even in laughter, even when you're laughing, your heart is sorrowful and the end of that mirth is heaviness. You see, you can go to a party and have a good time for a short time. You can go get drunk or you can have sex. You can have another woman, another man, and the passions of the moment, but soon they're past and that guilt is there. And that which was so sweet for a moment in your mouth has turned to bitterness, the Bible says. And these people in Sodom were too busy for God. People today are too busy for God. You look at what is happening just today. Look at all the sporting events that'll be going on today. And that's fine. I'm for sports. I believe in sports. I think they're tremendous. But God ought to be first. And like the man who was rich that Jesus told about, he said, Jesus quoting, Jesus, he said, I will say to my soul, soul, take thine ease. You have much goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, be merry. Why, you've got social security, you've got a pension, you've got hospitalization insurance, you've got all these things. Why don't you just take it easy now? 
you know what happened? That man clutched his breast and screamed that night with a heart attack. And the scripture says that Jesus said that there was a voice from heaven that said, Thou fool. In other words, he was putting all of his confidence in the things of this world rather than the things of God. And in Romans 1, it says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served things rather than the Creator. And today, we are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. The devil is whispering in our ears that we're all right, we don't have to worry. Put on a good front outside. Let people think that you're moral and that you're good and you're respectable. And you don't realize that your soul is dead toward God and you don't realize that you're headed toward judgment in hell. And we become idolaters and God says idolatry is the worst of all the sins. And then they were guilty, of course, of sex perversion, as I've already mentioned. And one of the last directions that a nation takes before judgment comes is sexual perversion. And it's usually found in affluent societies. Lot was unhappy. He was living in Sodom. He saw all this going on. He knew it was wrong, and he was unhappy. The scripture says his soul was vexed and miserable. He had one foot in the kingdom of God. He had the other foot in the world, and he was miserable both ways. And there are some people that are miserable in church, and they're miserable if they're not in church. Because, you see, you haven't sold out totally to either the world or God. And God demands that you surrender all. I surrender all. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to have to surrender all. Many of you have had a Christian heritage. Your parents were Christians. You learned from the Bible in school. And you're now a young person or a man of the world, but you're really never really happy and satisfied. You don't have that sense of fulfillment and joy. There's always that ambition that drives you on wanting something more. And you'll never find it till you find God. There's something missing in your life. Nietzsche, where Hitler got many of his ideas, his father was a minister, and Nietzsche declared that God is dead. He ended up in an insane asylum. He was a great philosopher and a great writer, and he searched, 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 but he never found because he never yielded. He never submitted to God. The clouds of God's judgment were gathering over Sodom. The day of Armageddon was near. You see, the Bible teaches that God is a God of love, but the Bible also teaches that God is a God of wrath. And there are two words that are translated wrath in the Greek New Testament. Thumos, which means it suddenly boils up like a thunderstorm, explodes and passes. And then the word orge, which is always there, no matter what happens. God is always judging. He follows you wherever you go. He sees what you're doing. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry, or gay, God is angry with the wicked every day. God is angry with some of you every day. And the scripture says in Romans 1, for the wrath, the or gay of God, is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. 
And we could go on with scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. And there'll come a time, the scripture says in Revelation 6, when they will ask the rocks and the mountains to fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come. And who's going to be able to stand? Nobody. We'll all be judged. The Bible says that God's wrath is someday going to be poured out upon the world. Now, people no longer believe that. Preachers no longer preach much about it. It's interesting to me that the preaching about the coming judgment is coming from the scientists, philosophers, secular professors in our universities, warning us of things to come. And the Bible is so full of it, and yet we somehow avoid it. Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem because he saw judgment coming. Jesus wept over Jerusalem 700 years later, and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, but you would not do it. You wouldn't do it. God warns Sodom, and he sends two messengers, two angels, to warn. But Lot's wife didn't believe. He believed. They said, get out of Sodom. God is going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham had prayed for Sodom that God would spare it. And God said, if you, and Abraham said, if you can only find 10 righteous people in Sodom, would you spare it? And God said, yes, but he couldn't find 10. So God said, judgment is going to come. But Lot believed when those angels came and told him that the judgment was going to come. And the men of Sodom were so wicked that they wanted to grab those men and commit sin with them. That's how wicked and low down they'd become. Their hearts were hardened in sin. They were doomed. But because of Abraham, God was going to save Lot and his family. And God said through these messengers or through these angels, get out of Sodom now and don't look back if you look back, you'll be turned to a pillar of salt. The wrath of God was poured out on Sodom, but it also fell upon Lot's wife. His wife looked back. She didn't want to leave Sodom. She loved the pleasures of Sodom. She loved the materialism that she had there. She loved the country clubs and all the other things. She loved all of that. And to have to leave it all, she just couldn't believe that it was happening. And she looked back. Now, why did Jesus say, remember Lot's wife? Why did he say it? First, he said it because she was the wife of Abraham's nephew. She had lived in Abraham's tent. Many times she had seen the power of God demonstrated. Too much is given, much shall be required, the Scripture says. Many times she had heard about the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the greatness of God, but it hadn't really gone into her heart. So let's remember that she had heard. The second thing Jesus is probably reminding us of is remember what a wrong marriage can do. She was a Canaanite. How many men and women have been destroyed by marrying the wrong person? and being led the wrong way. 
That's why it's so important for young people to find the will of God and to find the right man or the right woman for them. Because your mate can have a big influence in your life. And then the third reason I think Jesus said, remember her, is said, remember her sin. It seems such a small sin, but it represented something deeper. It represented unbelief over many years. It wasn't just a moment of unbelief. It wasn't just a glance back. It had been building up. It represented rebellion against God on many occasions. And God in His mercy was giving her another chance. He said, look not behind thee. Don't look back. He was giving her another chance. But she didn't take it. And Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. And then fourthly, remember that she was almost saved at the gates of Zor, the city of refuge, where they'd be safe. A few more steps. Agrippa, the great king, said to Paul, after Paul got through preaching to him, he said, almost thou persuadest me. Almost you've persuaded me to give my life to Christ. But not quite. And Agrippa never gave his life to Christ. She was almost saved. A few more steps and she'd be in the city of refuge where she was safe. And then fifthly, I think Jesus would, was reminding us, remember that she was offered salvation. Christ is the place of refuge and safety. God's wrath, God's orgy was poured out where? Upon the cross. It was on the cross where Christ died for us. And Jesus was enduring the wrath of God that you and I deserve. I deserve the wrath of God. I'm a sinner. I deserve judgment in hell. But I'm not going to spend one day in hell. Not because I have preached to people or because I've read the Bible or because I go to church. Or it's because of Jesus on the cross. Because of what He did. He died on the cross. He became sin for us who knew no sin. And He rose again. And He's a living Christ offering you salvation today. And if you're watching by television, pick up the phone and call that number on the screen. And that counselor will help you and talk to you in some problem that you may have. Or perhaps you're not certain of your own relationship to God. Make sure today with many that will make that decision here. And then sixthly, I think that Jesus wanted us to remember about Lot's wife because he was reminding us that God never judges without warning. Remember St. Helens, which is causing a little problem right now? And remember there was a fellow by the name of Harry Truman that lived on the side of St. Helens and they tried to get him to move before the thing boiled over and he wouldn't do it. He said, no, I've lived on this mountain for years. I know the mountain. It's not going to hurt me. I'm all right. Don't worry. The night before we saw him on the news, he said, don't worry about me. I can take care of myself. And then when the top blew off, he was buried in tons and tons and tons of molten ash. He had been warned. He had been urged to flee. Remember the Johnstown flood in Pennsylvania? When so many hundreds of scores of people were killed? 
and the people down in the valley had been warned that the dam was cracking, move, evacuate, get out while there's time, but they wouldn't do it, they didn't believe it, and the flood came, and many of them lost their lives. Judgment is usually preceded by warning, and the judgments of Revelation are preceded by warning, and God is warning you today of the judgment that's coming to your own life. I'm not talking right now about the judgment upon the world, but the judgment that's going to come upon you as an individual when you stand before the judgment of God. God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world. He's appointed a day. The time is already set, and you'll be there. And all of your thoughts and intents and actions will be there on the screen for the whole world to see, and you will be condemned by your own words and your own thoughts. And then seventhly, I believe that God is reminding us to remember. Remember when God warns there is danger in delay. Constantly through the Bible, it is saying, judgment is coming. Prepare to meet thy God. Get ready. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. We don't know that you'll be alive tomorrow. I don't know that I'll be alive tomorrow. We have no guarantee that we'll live through this night. This could be the last message you will ever hear from the Bible. You may never have another moment like this as long as you live. Come to Christ while you can, the place of refuge, the place of safety, because in Christ is the only place of safety when judgment comes, because there He took the judgment for us. And then eighthly, I believe He wanted us to remember Lot's wife because the judgment was strange and sudden. Like Belshazzar, remember in the fifth chapter of Daniel when the judgment came upon Babylon? He never expected it. He was having a great party for a thousand of his lords and ladies. And Daniel the prophet was not at the party. He had been the prime minister under his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. He was an old man. But the Medo-Persians that night had surrounded Babylon and changed the direction of the Euphrates River, and they marched under the walls of Babylon and slew Belshazzar and his guests that night, and another empire took over. It was strange and sudden, and you can go all the way through the Bible and find instances like that. Or remember Ananias and Sapphira? They lied before God that they had given when they hadn't given, and they were struck dead as an illustration to the church that you can be in the church and people can think you're all right, but deep down inside you're a hypocrite. And a hypocrite means an actor. You're acting out religion, but you don't have it in your heart. It's a false thing. You haven't really come to grips with Christ. You don't take Him really seriously in your life. And Lot's wife was to be forever a warning to those who are acting out their faith. Sodom and Gomorrah gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They stand in their punishment as a permanent warning of the fire of judgment, according to Jude 1, the seventh verse. 
but it's a warning to all of us. That pillar of salt was there for a permanent warning to the whole world for generations to come that judgment is coming. And you better repent and get right with God. You say, well, Billy, I would like to repent and I'd like to get right with God and I would like to go to heaven. And I don't want to be there on that judgment day. I'd like to escape it. I want to, my sins forgiven. What do I have to do? First, you must repent of your sins. Jesus said, except you repent, you shall likewise perish. You too will perish unless you repent. And repentance means that you change. Change your mind, change your way of living, change your priorities, change your attitudes. A total change takes place in your life. The old creature passes away and a new creature comes. A new nature comes to live within you. The Holy Spirit comes to live to give you a new life. Have you ever repented? You can do it this afternoon. Right now, you can say yes to Christ and repent. The second thing is by faith. By faith, you come to Christ. You don't come to Him with your mind alone because you cannot, with your mind, find God. The human mind is darkened and affected by sin and blinded by the devil so that it no longer can lead you to God. The mind alone is incapable of finding God. The scripture says by wisdom they cannot know God. So you have to come by faith. That doesn't mean you commit intellectual suicide because it's certainly plausible and reasonable. When you come to Christ and the more you study the Bible, the more reasonable and rational it becomes. And you begin to find answers to questions that you've never known before. And then the third thing, you must be willing to follow Him. Now this is Pentecost Sunday. The Holy Spirit came to dwell within the hearts of people for the first time in that way. Dwelling in your heart and your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now does not dwell in a building, it dwells in your life, in your heart and you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am a temple. I may not have a steeple on top, but I'm a temple, and so are you if you know Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And your body belongs to Christ, your mind belongs to Christ, and when you come to Christ, you're saying, I surrender all of it. I surrender my marriage, I surrender my family, I surrender my business, I surrender everything I have to Jesus Christ. He is going to be my Lord and my Savior and the one that I follow from this moment on. I'm going to ask you to do something that you never thought you'd ever do. I'm going to ask you to do something that we've seen several thousand people do this week. More people per capita, I think, than any crusade we've ever held in America. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat right now in just a moment. Get up out of your seat and come and stand in front of this platform and after you've come and stood here I'm going to say a word to you and have a prayer with you and give you some literature to help you in your Christian life. 
If you're with friends and relatives, they'll wait. I'm going to ask that no one leave the Colosseum at this moment. That disturbs many people. But I'm going to ask you to come. If you're with friends or relatives or you've come in a bus, they'll wait. If you come from that top area up there or over on this side, it'll take about a minute and a half to two minutes. So start now. And older people coming, be careful. Hold on to the rail as you come down because the steps are steep. We haven't had any accidents this week, and I'm so happy about that. But you get up and come. Men, women, young people, you want to make sure today. You say, well, why do you ask us to come forward publicly? The reason I do it publicly is because every person Jesus called, he called publicly. Every person. Have you noticed that? There's a reason. He said, if you're not willing to acknowledge me before people, I'll not acknowledge you before my Father, which is in heaven. There's something about coming forward and declaring yourself publicly that Jesus wants you to do. So you come and declare yourself today and say, from this moment on, I want to know that I'm going to heaven. I want to know my sins are forgiven. I want to know that Christ is mine. You've been listening to Billy Graham. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.